About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers, bound with chains and sentries before the door, regarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And when he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them for its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and, the brother, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what became of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king of Chamberlain, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, "The voice of a god and not of man, a man!" Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> all right. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, welcome to Risen. It's good to see you all today. If this is your first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you. I'm so glad that you're visiting us. I'm glad that you're starting out the new year uh, worshiping God. I hope you find a church. I hope you find a family, a spiritual family to uh, walk the Christian life with because it, it wasn't meant to be lived alone. It was, it was meant to be lived together. Um, and as you guys can tell, um, we're going through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 12 right now. Um, we'll probably, this will probably take this, take us through a little bit past Easter. Um, 
But what we've seen thus far in the book of Acts is the birth and the journey of the early church. That's what we see. In the very beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, he tells them this. In Acts chapter 1, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so from chapter 1 to now, and, and we will see it till the end, we see this constant refrain that the disciples are boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. And with this... The hand of the Lord is upon the disciples and the early church and many great people are added to their number. The hand of the Lord is with them. The Holy Spirit is moving powerfully. And so what we see in the book of Acts is how does God bless his church? What is his mission for the church? Is to bless his church through the faithfulness to his word, right? That's how the church spiritually grows. That's how Christians are sanctified, are encouraged, how the lost are found. That's how light is shown in the darkness. It, is, it was the hope 2,000 years ago, and it's still the hope of the world today. But at the same time, what we see in our text today, what do we see? We see that this mission, we see that the church is not without trials and tribulations. And that is what we see in our text. That is what we're going to examine today. And the three things we're going to look at today are, one, we're going to take a look briefly at Christian persecution. Two, we're going to take a look at what the church does in the midst of persecution, and that is pray. We're going to take a look at the prayers of the church. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the mystery of God's deliverance. And I'll be able to unpack that. So just stay with me now. Let's take a look at Christian persecution. Our chapter begins with King Herod laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. He killed James, the brother of John. James and John were Jesus' disciples. The James that is referred later in this passage is the brother of Jesus, right? And so scripture uses multiple names. uh, Just James was common. Mary was common. Just as today we have common names. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he also arrested Peter. Now, this isn't the first time that the early Christians are facing opposition, suffering, and death. Peter was arrested before. The apostles had been beaten and threatened with their loss of their lives before. But what we see, and and, and this text doesn't really go into detail, but what we've seen in the past in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, when they are being persecuted, the way that the disciples, the early church responded to persecution, what did they say? They say, we must obey God rather than men. That's what they say. We're witnesses to Christ and we cannot not talk about Jesus. We're, We're not going to stop. There's risk of injury. There's risk of imprisonment. There's risk of death. There's sacrifice. They're braving it aren't they? This is courage. This is true biblical courage. From history, we know that for the first 300 years, from about this time in the book of Acts to about 300 AD, that there were about 10, 9 or 10, depending on how you count them, systematic persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire, where they were imprisoned, plundered, tortured, and killed. There's an account of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John. 
And the account says that the Roman magistrate is persisting with him to swear and curse Christ, and then I will release you. And Polycarp replies, as it's recorded, 86 years I have served God, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Polycarp was then condemned to death and burned alive. In the face of opposition and persecution and suffering and death, the earliest Christians exhibited this supernatural courage. History tells us that Christians were crucified in droves along the highways so people could watch them as they came in and out of the city, out of Rome, as a scare tactic. But, as we see in our text, as you and I can testify, the church has continued to grow. It's a historical fact that the church continued to grow to the ends of the earth. How is this possible? Well, in Acts chapter 7, we went over this when Stephen is uh, preaching the gospel. He loses his life for it. And, And what does he do as they're putting him to death? He prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. One historian puts it that the reason Christianity succeeded over dozens of other religions was because Christians died better than anybody else. He says they died the best. That's the reason their religion did the best. You see, if you study history, if you study the scriptures, you'll see that nobody dealt with the torment and with the death and with the persecutions the way that the Christians did. We know from history that many Christians died praying for their executioners. They died singing as they were thrown to the lines. They died forgiving their executioners. They died with joy. And there's this incredible phrase that comes down to us from this era. It's it's from Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers. And he had a saying. He said, uh, uh, it's in Latin. I won't read the Latin, but I'll, I'll just read the translation. He says, we multiply when you reap us for the blood of Christians is the seed of the church, right? The blood of the Christians is the seed. There's something about Christian courage in the face of opposition and persecution, suffering and death that becomes a seed for new life and spiritual fruit. Why is that? Well, I think when We exhibit Christian courage in the face of opposition, suffering, death. Then what people see is that that's all we got, right? They see our faithfulness to something despite the fact that it will cost us everything. I remember when I was first dating Jen, um, you know, she wanted me to exhibit my love for her like she wanted to see it cost something. <laughs> I want you to drive to where I'm at. <laughs> you know, if I got to drive to where you at, I don't know if you care about me. But there is something about Christian courage that shares a story of how the love of God is worthy of a cost. 
And the Holy Spirit uses faithful biblical courage to communicate the gospel with crystal clarity, shine the light into the darkness, give hope to people in a broken world, save people, encourage the church, and glorify God. Christian courage. But Christian persecution is not just a fact of the past, is it? It's not just a fact of history. It's also a fact of the present. There are many Christians around the world facing persecution right now that don't have a place of worship, that have to sing silently, just like Peter and Rhoda and the early church, so that they won't be heard and found out. In a recent Christianity Today article titled, It's Still Dangerous to Follow Jesus, uh, they, they interviewed David Curry, who is the president of Open Doors, which is an organization that monitors Christian persecution throughout the world. He's also worked diplomatically to raise awareness and support for those who endure extreme uh, restrictions and in some cases horrific violence for their faith. And he says in this interview, and he says, you know what, this is all that we can document. There's probably much more. But he says, every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. And then he continues, and, and I think what he says here is profound. He says, you might think that this is, these numbers are all about oppression. But he says, it is really about resilience. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another, but that's not what is happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The Christian faith continues to grow. The blood of Christians is the seed. Friends, the reality is that Christians worship a God who was martyred for his faith. Christians follow a God who was martyred. Christian persecution, then, is the way of the cross. Frightening but true. But the Holy Spirit works most powerfully when one has the courage to take up the cross. And I, and I think that this is a good word for us today because, you know, we, we exhibit a, a, a degree of religious freedom here. But that does not mean that, that we do not need courage to carry our cross. You see, if we have the faith and the courage to carry our cross and to witness to the world of our Lord Jesus, what we will see, we will see God bless it with spiritual fruit, with spiritual life. But it takes faith. It takes courage. This brings us to the second thing we see in the midst of, of persecution, and that is the prayers of the church. Peter is kept in prison, but what is happening in verse, uh, verse 5, it says, earnest prayer for him was made, by, uh, was made to God by the church. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think it means that what is happening to Peter is not purely a physical and material problem. Right? They're praying for him. They're spiritually 
endeavoring for him. And what that means that what is happening to Peter, the persecution, the pain, and the suffering, it's a spiritual problem, right? It's spiritual warfare. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In Ephesians, Paul says the same thing. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Because, you know, I think that you and I, we look at this text and we think Peter is bound in chains. An angel wakes him up, speaks to him. His chains falls off. A gate is swinging open. This is ludicrous. How can anyone believe this? How can anyone try to get others to believe this? And, and I don't want to spend too much time here making a case for the supernatural, but just very briefly, I will. Um, and I will say this, that any supernatural miracle in scripture, it stands upon one thing, and that is your understanding of creation. Your understanding of the cosmos, your understanding of how we came to be. That's where, that's where it all goes back to. And so whatever your doctrine or understanding is of the beginning of the cosmos is what will govern your understanding and acceptance of the miracles of scripture, right? Not just this, but the incarnation, the resurrection, the exodus. Because if there is a God who has acted supernaturally and created life, then there is nothing illogical it couldn't be harder for God who created life to reorder life, right? To resurrect life. Actually, if there is a God who has created life, then miracles can't be impossible. Um, if there is a supernatural God who has intervened in history to create life, then it's actually very possible, extremely possible. And so the real question is, what is your understanding of reality, right? Is it purely physical and material? Or is there a creator God who is spirit and truth? Is humanity a result of survival of the fittest? Or is there a creator God who has made humanity as the pinnacle of his creation to govern the world with truth, with spirit, with love? Is our telos, might makes right, right? The will to power. Or is our telos to know God and glorify him? And so here's what I believe. Um, when we come to the miracles and the supernatural character of scripture, I don't think it's helpful uh, to approach it um, and, and just assume that scripture is, and God isn't real because of the supernatural, right? I think it's okay to assent, to assent to the scientific and intellectual challenges of the supernatural, but at the same time, I think what we have to do is we have to understand our, our philosophy of the cosmos, right? It's, it's, it has to be holistic because I think the Christian faith gives you the best case for morality and justice, for meaning and purpose, for suffering and death, and the undeniable fact of Jesus Christ, the historical figure of Jesus Christ who changed everything 2,000 years ago. So I'm just going to briefly say that. If you have any other questions that you want to talk about when it comes to sort of the, the apologetic nature of Scripture and, and the Bible and Jesus, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. I love to grab coffee with you. Uh, man, I love to talk about this. Uh, with you and, and really even just kind of like recommend books and even go through with, these to, with you uh, with this together. But what I want to do now is back, jump back into our text here and, and back to the prayer that's being made for Peter, right? And that is this, right? What one might see as a physical problem, the church sees as a spiritual problem. I think that's very, very, very important for us, especially as Westerners, 
moderners in a 21st century, in a very fast-moving culture where results and productivity needs to be accomplished immediately, right? We're always looking for physical solutions, aren't we? And we're not really addressing the deeper spiritual problems. I was talking about this text with a church member this week, and the member was super excited about this text. This was, of course, before um, I was I, I had written my sermon, and um, I asked him why, right? Uh, what's about this text that jumps out at you? You know, I'm a little lost here. You know? and, he, and he said this. He said, you know, too many times we as Christians, we underestimate the spiritual warfare that is happening in the world, in our lives, in our families, and in our church, we need, we need to hear this text. We need to listen to this text. And he's absolutely right. Because if you know the story of Job, do you know how that began? Do you know how Job's suffering began? How his conflict began? Well, let me, let me just read this here. It says this. Satan came to the Lord. And he said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Right? There's a physical problem. Right? He incurs physical disaster, physical pain, physical loss. But how, what, is, what is underneath all that? It is spiritual warfare. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. A physical problem here, right? Peter lacks courage when times are tough. He's emotionally unstable. He's not steadfast. His highs are high, his lows are low. Some might think that's a physical problem, but it is a deeper spiritual problem. Satan has asked Jesus to sift him. And so what we see in scripture is that suffering and sin and persecution, it's a spiritual battle. Satan is at work. As I mentioned in America, we don't face this um, violent level of persecution that our brothers and sisters are facing around the world. But don't be deceived. That does not mean we are exempt from spiritual warfare. That does not mean Satan is seeking and pursuing you. Faith that is struggling, church division, marital conflict, that's Satan trying to bring God's people down. We are wrestling, we are waging war with the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. And what we learn from Jesus and what we learn from the early church, one of the biggest spiritual weapons we have is prayer. It's prayer. And what we see here in the early church is that they prayed earnestly. Another translation says that they prayed fervently. It's not a whimsical prayer. It is a prayer that believes. It is a prayer that cares. In our passage, it tells us that they're praying for God's deliverance, for God's protection, physical and spiritual, for Peter's deliverance and for Peter to have courage 
to continue to proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition. And so in the same way, church, God calls us to be courageous, but how are we going to be courageous? It's by earnestly praying. And not just deliverance from, of course, violent persecution. That is something that we must do for our brothers and sisters and some of the missionaries that we support that are around the world, that are going to the ends of the earth. But we also must pray for ourselves, for our marriages, for our children, for our families, for our church, for spiritual deliverance and spiritual victory against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil. Do not be naive. Do not be deceived. But you must pray earnestly and fervently. This brings us to the last point. uh, The mystery of God's deliverance. In our passage today, we see this imperfect picture of God's deliverance, don't we? God delivers Peter. God brings justice in Herod's death. Uh, A contemporary historian, Josephus, tells us that Herod died abruptly um, after this incident with severe stomach pains. So we see God's deliverance. God saved Peter. But God didn't save James. He saved Peter. He saved Barnabas but he didn't save Stephen. Didn't save James. Why is that? I think this is important for us to discuss also. In Christian theology, uh, this doctrine is called the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is the fact that God is Lord over all creation. As sovereign, he exercised his rule, his authority, his control over all things, over all creation, including his presence with his people. Everything happens according to his plan and intention. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. But here is the rub, here is the paradox. If this is true, how could a loving, sovereign, in control God save Peter? But not James. And so what we find here and what the church has found and the smartest, the most brilliant theologians ever have all came to the same conclusion is that in this sovereignty of God, there is this irrefutable and perplexing mystery mystery and sometimes uh, just giving encouragement to hope in the resurrection or giving encouragement to hope in God's redemptive will and plan in the midst of pain and suffering and loss sometimes it is not enough to swallow this reality of God's mystery Cornelius Van Til Um, was a philosopher and theologian. I actually wanted to name Luke Cornelius. Jen was like, not going to happen. 
She's like, they're going to they're gonna call him Courtney. I was like, no, 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 you got to read this book by Cornelius Van Til. You got to read about presuppositionalism. She's like, no, I'm not reading that book. Compromised on Luke. But he taught apologetics, which is the defense of Christianity through rational argument. And what he said was, every argument for the non-existence of God is founded upon the presupposition that we are ontologically, that we are in essence, that we are in being, in mind, in thought, in power, in will, that we are identical to God. That's what he says. Every argument for the non-existence of God is founded upon that God and I, God and us, we are the same. He thinks like we do. He should act like we would act. And so when we argue against God, we disagree with God because we expect God to think like we would, to have the knowledge that we have, to the limited power that we have. But what Van Til said is that, that to think like this is an existential fallacy because no human being has the power and wisdom to understand how God can be lovingly, uh, ultimately loving, loving and sovereign and at the same time give free will to others with the potential to sin. Right. The closest analogy he would say is a parent that allows their child to suffer a little bit for a greater good, maybe to learn a lesson or to grow in character. But even that Ventil would say is not an exact one-to-one comparison because it would seem incomprehensible for a parent to allow their child to go through something like that, death, if they could prevent it. And he says it's because the parent's understanding of the redemptive and greater good to come out of it, the eternal life that is described as a better life, their knowledge and certainty of those things are finite. They are ontologically, qualitatively, not quantitatively different from God's. So what he says here is that only the God, only God, the Son, as Jesus, has the full knowledge and experience of both suffering on earth, which is temporary, and resurrection in heaven, which is permanent. And only God the Father has the full knowledge and experience of losing his child to death on earth, which is temporary, while experiencing and receiving back his child's resurrection in heaven, which is permanent. So what Van Til says that the ultimate answer to the disorientation of God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering, the ultimate answer is not trying to understand what God understands because we never will. He says the ultimate answer of understanding suffering in the midst of God's sovereignty is understanding the suffering of his son. God saved Peter. He didn't save James. How could a loving, sovereign, in control God allow that? What is the answer? Well, the mystery of this sovereignty of God can only be answered by another mystery. And church, that is the mystery of the gospel. That God would save us, but he didn't save Jesus. Jesus himself would ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus doesn't minimize the pain of this mystery of God's sovereignty, even though he intellectually understands the answer to it. Jesus understands 
that his suffering is the answer. He understands that his torture is the answer. He understands his death is the answer. This is the only way that the pain and sin and suffering and the death of this world can be eradicated forever. And this is a mystery. Why, Jesus, did you suffer for us? Why, Jesus, did you die for us? How could you forgive and love and support and vouch and shower your joy and mercy and grace over us over and over and over again? Man, that is a mystery that I will never be able to understand. But I'm okay with that. Because it's a mystery that has saved me. It's a mystery that has transformed me into the person I am today, friends. It is a mystery that our faith is founded upon. Paul calls it a great mystery revealed to us now that was hidden from the prophets and which angels even long to see. It's a mystery that is still the hope of the world. And as Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he says, you know, this mystery that that Christ crucified, it's a stumbling block to some, it's foolishness to others, but he says to those who are called, it is the power and wisdom of God. So friends, that's my prayer for us. I know that every single one of us have gone through the mystery of suffering. And there is no ontological way that we can understand it the way that God understands it. And as a minister of God's word, I can only point you to his word. What is his word? It is Jesus who has become flesh. It is the mystery of the gospel. It is the mystery of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge uh, that life, life's mysteries are too big for us to comprehend. And one of the greatest mysteries of life is suffering, loss, death, It is not just a mystery. It is an emotional problem for us also. And what we see here in our text, what we see here in your word, what we see in the early church is the way that they embraced this mystery. This mystery of suffering is is through prayer. As the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the great mystery of the gospel. So, Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of God, which is what? It is not power to vanquish your enemies. The glory of God is the grace of God and the suffering of Christ to not only vanquish your enemies, but to redeem your enemies, to forgive and save and love your enemies, to turn your enemies into friends. That is a great mystery but I pray that you would allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and to help us to be 
okay with that mystery. No, not just okay with it, but to love it, to be fed by it, to be renewed by it day after day. So we pray earnestly, we pray fervently for this. Would you do this in our hearts? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.